0: You all have your notes and uh, are ready to dive into Matthew 5 once again. I'm going to look at verses 27 through 30 today, but what I'd like to do is back up to verse 17. and read through verse 30, and then we'll tackle 27 through 30 with the context fresh in our minds. Important context, of course, as all context is. Beginning in verse 17, our Lord Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, their teachings. I did not come to destroy But to fulfill, for I assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And, of course, the jot is the smallest letter and a tittle is the smallest part of a letter, right? It's a way of emphasizing absolutely nothing will pass away till all is fulfilled. Whoever breaks, therefore, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is speaking here as the great fulfiller of the Old Testament scriptures and as the one who brings a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Those concepts are key for understanding the things that he does in the rest of his teaching, the things that he says. Last week we looked at, or the last two weeks we looked at, how he dealt with the Pharisaic, the scribal teaching, concerning murder. Beginning verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, you see that's why we call them antitheses, this is the first one, and they're each introduced this way, You've heard it was said, but I say to you. Something along those lines. So he's contrasting the way he teaches with what they're hearing from the scribes and Pharisees and the kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees are demanding and seeking to exhibit. And so he's not adding something new, as we've seen in our previous study, to the Old Testament revelation. In fact, everything we're going to see that he says comes from the Old Testament revelation. He's a great fulfiller of it. And part of the purpose of it was to, right, teach us a righteousness, a holiness that is like God. And they were failing in that. And so he's pushing the true purpose of the law in this sense, right? And so he says, but I say to you, whoever's angry with a brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire." Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, or are you on the way with him? Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. There will always be consequences to putting off dealing with anger." <laughs> right. Now remember as we looked at the way Jesus was teaching here, it, it's not that the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching something wrong when they emphasized you shall not murder. It's perfect. In fact, they were quoting the Bible directly when they said it. And there are some scribes and Pharisees, you think of somebody like Nicodemus, right, uh, who probably had a much fuller understanding of the Bible, people like Simeon, you know, the disciples, who would look at the larger scriptures but in the main, this religious establishment, the hypocrites that Jesus is constantly going after, tended to em- emphasize those parts of the law that were a little easier to keep. Most of us can get through life without murdering somebody. None of us can get through life without sinful anger. So let's emphasize you're righteous if you manage not to murder somebody, but eh, who cares about anger so much? He didn't emphasize that so much. So Jesus wants to drive home the whole counsel of God, and that's what he's doing there. And He's going to do that when he talks about adultery as well again not adding to old testament revelation but reminding god's people of what all of what it says right and so this brings us to the text for this morning where our lord jesus says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not commit adultery and who they who have they heard it from well they've heard it constantly from the scribes and pharisees right it's one of the ten commandments but i say to you That whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. One of the easier sayings of Jesus, huh? <laughs> Not quite. Let's, let's say a word of prayer and then we'll try to understand what's being said here. Holy Father, we come to you, uh, those of us who know you, with a deep sense that uh, we believe in Jesus because of the work of your spirit in our hearts. You have enabled us to see and to enter the kingdom. And you've enabled us to understand the gospel and spiritual truths through the power of your spirit. And for that, we are deeply grateful. And we come then humbly before you, Lord, recognizing that we cannot continue to understand what your word says without the ongoing, filling, and illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. So it is our prayer that you would fill us anew with your spirit and with understanding. So we can understand what it is that you want to say to us through your word today. We don't deserve to get to even hear it. It is your grace that we that we have your word. It is by your grace that we can be here and hear the words of our Lord Jesus that have been kept for us for all these centuries. Help us to listen with open hearts to what he has to say, to what you have to say to us through your word today. We'll give you all the glory for what you do. As a result, we pray these things, as always, for our good, but most of all for your glory. And in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So as you can see already, the passage before us this morning is the second of the so-called antitheses of Jesus here that fill out chapter 5 in our Bibles in which Jesus contrasts the common teaching of the Jewish leaders of his day, the things they emphasized, with his own teaching, showing that he does not abolish but rather fulfills the Old Testament by teaching its precepts fully and properly. This is one of the many ways in our previous studies that we saw that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament by fulfilling its purpose. Of course, he fulfills it also as being the one who fulfills all the messianic prophecies and so forth as well. He fulfills it in... Also, as we saw in our previous study, by being what all those Old Testament ceremonial laws pointed to, all those sacrifices pointed to, the greatest one and only sacrifice for our sins. <clears throat> and so that's what he's doing here. He's, he's fulfilling the Old Testament by fully teaching its precepts. As Daniel Doriani says of these verses... The prohibition of lust in verse 28 continues the theme introduced in verses 20 through 26 of doing the right things for the right reasons from the heart. If no murder means no rage, then no adultery means no lust. I think he's on the right track, and that is indeed the focus of this morning's text, which we're going to examine under three main headings. First, the truncated teaching of the Jewish leaders, And then secondly, the true teaching of Jesus, and this is going to be a pattern we're going to follow through all these antitheses. And then here, thirdly, the demands of Jesus' teaching. And so first of all, we're going to look at this truncated teaching of the Jewish leaders that Jesus emphasizes in verse 27, when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, and here he has in mind Moses, giving the Ten Commandments to the people of God at Sinai, right? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, as with the previous commandment that we've seen already prohibiting murder, the command that is cited by the Jewish religious authorities is an exact quotation of the Septuagint translation of the Ten Commandments, um, this time referring to the Seventh Commandment in Exodus 20.14. And again, the problem isn't that they aren't citing Scripture, but they're only citing part of Scripture, you back up into chapter 4 of uh, Matthew sometime, and you read about Satan's temptation of Jesus, you'll see that he was good at doing that, citing scripture, but only part of it. Uh, so, good on him for citing scripture, but bad on him for only citing part of it. That's the kind of thing the devil does, as Matthew has shown us already in chapter 4, in his recounting of the temptation of Christ. So as with their focus on the commandment not to commit murder, so here they focused upon the portion of the law they felt was more easily obeyed. It is, after all, much easier to avoid physically committing adultery than it is to avoid sexual impurity in the heart. So they can run around if they manage not to commit adultery and pat themselves on the back. They don't want to look too closely at their hearts and the lust that might be there And the adultery of the heart they might be committing because they wouldn't pass that righteousness test. D.A. Carson speaks of yet another tactic they use to avoid the obvious intent of the law with regard to purity of the heart when he writes that, quote, the Old Testament, or the Old Testament commandment rather, not to commit adultery, is often treated in Jewish sources not so much as a function of purity as a theft. It was to steal another's wife. we will see a little bit why they do that, because they put together two of God's commandments, but they avoided the obvious intention of the other one, <laughs> that Jesus is going to bring out, actually. So Jesus is going to ca- counter this mentality. So if D.A. Carson is giving us an accurate description of the emphasis of the Jewish teaching in the first century, and I think, I think he is, then it further demonstrates how they avoided teaching which focused on the heart, doesn't it? This, this focus that they had may also be in, in part, as I said, of, of their reading of another of the Ten Commandments, namely the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is included in, in Exodus 20.17 and in Deuteronomy 5.21, and I'll read both of those texts for you. In Exodus 20.17, it says, You shall not covet excuse me, your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your neighbor's. In Deuteronomy 5.21, where we have these repeated later on, uh, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. And so you can see how the Pharisees would have said, well, um, this is like stealing your neighbor's wife. You covet your neighbor's wife, you try to take your neighbor's wife. And so they made it tantamount to theft. But that's not really the focus of this, of this particular commandment, as we'll see. And as Jesus makes clear in what he says... And it is certainly true that coveting things that belong to your neighbor may lead to theft. But how could the Pharisees not see that covening your neighbor's wife involves a desire for her in your heart that is sinful? I would argue they probably did see it. They just didn't want to stress that because they wanted to get away with that kind of sin. This commandment clearly implied the kind of adultery of the heart that Jesus is prohibiting. How is it that they couldn't see this? Now, we're going to return to this matter further on. For now, it's sufficient to observe that they again attempted to make righteousness more easily achievable by lowering its demands. In some ways, the Pharisees added things to the law. In other ways, they took them away, both in an effort to... Have a kind of righteousness that appears good to other people, but that avoids focusing on the hard issue, consistently avoids it. And this is what Jesus consistently addresses. As the great fulfiller of the Old Testament, our Lord Jesus will once again correct their misguided teaching by stressing, as I said earlier, the whole counsel of God, which leads us to our next main point. The true teaching of Jesus that we see in verse 28. But I, and this is very emphatic in the Greek text, in Jesus' words, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you can't say, you Pharisees, because I didn't physically commit the act, you haven't committed adultery. Adultery of the heart, anyway. Now, the Bible doesn't treat them as exactly the same. Nobody was stoned for adultery of the heart in the Old Testament and put to death for it. They were put to death physically committing adultery. So there is a difference, right? And Jesus isn't trying to equate them as exactly equivalent sins. He's just pointing out that they are both sins and that we should be concerned with both and that you probably won't commit the physical act if you haven't first committed the act in your heart anyway because that's where everything starts. So I don't want us to get the idea that some people get that adultery of the heart is just as bad as actually physically committing adultery. I don't think the Bible treats it that way, and I don't think Jesus does either. But just because it isn't as bad doesn't mean it's not bad. Because it is. It's a terrible sin. In fact, if you want to look at the way sin is described against God probably in the most predominant way, when he's challenging his people throughout the Old Testament, you know what he accuses them of? Spiritual adultery. Adultery is the sort of metaphor he uses for the way they treat him. And for him, it's always a matter of the heart. They confess him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He would say. That's spiritual adultery. So it's a bad, bad thing, even if it didn't get you the death penalty. But the Pharisees thought, well, if I can avoid the death penalty, (laughs) maybe I'm doing okay. Low bar. There are a couple of important points we need to consider to get the full import of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, First, as I've already indicated, and as we've already seen in the commandment not to covet your neighbor's wife, When Jesus pits his teaching here over against what the people were hearing from the scribes and Pharisees, wasn't saying anything new. I keep stressing that because there is a kind of teaching out there that makes out like Jesus is kind of set inside the Old Testament and giving a new ethic or something. Nothing would be or could be further from the truth. He's already said in leading up to this teaching, I am not doing that. And yet people say that he is. I talk about ignoring the context of the Bible. He's not doing that. Rather, once again, he's simply stressing what they should already have known from the Old Testament scriptures. He's bringing out what they're ignoring. We'll briefly consider a few more examples in order to see what I mean. We've already seen the example of "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife," and the implication of that is lusting after her, and you shouldn't do that, right? Drive that home. Uh, Jesus will drive that point home. And, as we'll see with the very language that he uses here. But let's look at a few Old Testament examples to further bolster this notion that even a fairly cursory reading of the Old Testament, not to mention just the Ten Commandments, would lead you to this concept. One really good example is from the book of Job in which Job himself describes his efforts to live righteously. Now, we know that God has said in the beginning of Job that he's the most righteous man on the earth at that time, Right? Um, of course, he wasn't even a close second to Jesus, right? He ends up repenting at the end of this for the sin he commits during all his trials. Uh, Jesus was the one, right? Was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. So even the most righteous man on the earth, we can read about at one point in history, couldn't do that. Right? He's still a sinner. But he rightly says, and God does not condemn him for this, in Job 31, beginning in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Now he's married, remember. To look upon a young woman in a certain way would be sinful. For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me, weigh, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands. Now, he said I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a deal with my eyes not to look at a young woman. He obviously means in the wrong way, right? Right? because he's talking about here in a sinful way in the context. He doesn't walk around every time a woman comes in and goes, okay, I can't you know, cover his eyes or something. That's not what he's saying. He means to look at them in a, in a sinful way. And, that, and that's what he says, my heart hasn't walked after my eyes. Right? Uh, when my eyes start to look, my heart. I won't let my heart go the wrong way. And then he says, then mainly let me sow and another eat let my harvest be rooted out if my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door lusting after his neighbor's wife, <laughs> right? And I think this was written before the Ten Commandments were given uh, personally, but but he understood what they taught already. He understood righteousness already and then it evolved Clearly, it was a matter of the heart. And that's why he could be called a righteous man. Because he understood it was a matter of the heart. And one of the things he talked about was the constant temptation to lust after women and how he avoided it. This is the kind of righteousness the scribes and Pharisees should have understood and taught and that Jesus is emphasizing. The kind of righteousness they should have seen if they just read Job, for example, There are also a couple of good examples to be found in the book of Proverbs, more than a couple actually, but we'll just look at a couple, in which Solomon warns his son about the dangers of lust and sadly he he didn't listen to his own instruction in his life. As as we find if we go back and read his whole life, uh, he basically, I guess, ended up saying, do as I say, not as I do, to his son. But he said in Proverbs 6, 23 through 25, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. No different than what Jesus was saying when he talked about adultery of the heart. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids. In Proverbs 7 25 through 27. Under the inspiration of the spirit, however faulty the man was, what he said here is the word of God. Solomon says in Proverbs 7.25, do not let your heart turn aside to her, speaking here of a harlot, to her ways. Do not stray into her path. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell descending to the chambers of death. Now here he's talking about there were harlots in those days and they would sometimes hang out in certain areas. And he said, don't be enticed by them. But what does he say? Don't let your heart turn aside. He won't turn aside if his heart doesn't first turn aside. He understood that such sin is a matter of the heart, just as our Lord Jesus taught. So clearly then, the scribes and Pharisees ought to have stressed the danger of the sins of lust and adultery of the heart. What Jesus is saying is something they ought to have known and probably did, but chose to ignore. It's not like they didn't read the Bible, right? They just ignored it like people do today. There are people who call themselves evangelical Christians and say, well, sexual immorality, I don't see why that's a... Sex outside of marriage, shacking up with somebody, I don't see why that's a problem. Have you not read the Bible at at all? Kim and I were talking to a young man recently. We pointed out that that's a sin. He said, you know, this is the first I've heard that. He'd been going to a number of churches. So sometimes we know what the Bible says. We just choose to ignore it. Sometimes we don't like that guy. But the churches he went to ought to have known. They have a Bible. They claim to read it. So that's the first thing. It's clear the Old Testament teaches this. They ought to have known it. Jesus isn't saying anything new. He's pointing out how badly the Pharisees and scribes, those hypocrites, are teaching the people with their hypocritical, false facade righteousness. And secondly, our Lord Jesus does not say merely that looking at a woman is sinful, but that the looking at a woman to lust for her is sinful. It's not simply noticing a person of the opposite sex to which he's referring Uh, Perhaps he has in mind here a lingering look, but he certainly has in mind a lustful look. And most men can't linger in their looking very long without lusting. So lingering looks are probably a good thing to avoid, right? Um, Like I think Job was trying to do when he made that covenant with his eyes. We should take a tip from Job and make a covenant with our own eyes, right? Noticing is fine, lingering looks, off limits because it leads to lust. That might be a good place to start. Now, the Greek verb Jesus used when referring to the act of lust, it generally referred to a strong impulse towards something and could be translated as a desire or longing for something. And it's, you can desire or long for good things, so there's a good sense in which it's used, this word at times. But it was often used, as in the case of Jesus here, in a bad sense of unrestricted desire for a forbidden person or thing. And so it can be translated to lust for or after someone or something, or to crave or even covet. And that last possible translation is very important for us, because this is, in fact, the very word that is used in the Septuagint translation of the Ten Commandments, For those of you who are not commonly here, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that was the common Bible in the first century. Most of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are actually from not the Hebrew Bible, but the Septuagint. And that's the case here. The Ten Commandments, the two commandments that he quoted here when he referred to what the Pharisees say. or The one commandment that he quoted and the other he's alluding to here, both come from the the Septuagint, excuse me. So the very word that's used here by Jesus when he speaks of lusting after a woman is actually this very word that was used in both Exodus 20.17 and Deuteronomy 5.21 that I read to you earlier in the Septuagint. Wherein it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That Greek word is the word Jesus uses here for you shall not lust, not lusting in your heart. When Jesus makes it very clear here in verse 28, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman, to lust for her. Now, what's Jesus doing? Well, remember, the Pharisees tended to to talk about not committing adultery, and then they viewed adultery more as theft. Probably because of the 10th commandment. Jesus is using a word directly from the 10th commandment to counter that. He's saying, you guys should know if you know the 10 commandments and you like to cite them. What the meaning of that word really is. Don't lust your neighbor's wife. So Jesus has already cited in verse 27 the exact Septuagint translation of the commandment you shall not commit adultery when he referred to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And now I think he has in mind the Septuagint translation of you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not. In his mind, that means to lust after her because he uses the same word. And those familiar with their Bibles would have or should have picked up on this. And he's doing it clearly in response to their teaching. He sees them, obviously, as having avoided the implications of the commandments that they didn't particularly like. they would cite the commandment, they would just do something different with it. than was the obvious intent of it, once again. As the great fulfiller of the Old Testament, however, Jesus brings its full teaching to bear leaving no room for any supposed righteousness that does not address the matter of the heart. Whatever righteousness is, it starts with the heart. There's no such thing as genuine righteousness that doesn't begin in the heart. And we'll see that Jesus drives this point home even more forcefully as we consider our third and final point, the demands of Jesus' teaching. In verses 29 and 30, and hopefully I've been clear up to now. I've gotten into a lot of stuff, and hopefully I'll be clear with this. Uh, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says some very strong things. If your right eye causes you to sin, here he's dealing with the sin of lust, right? Sexual sin in the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, here once again, in the context of sexual sin in the heart, whatever way your eye or your hand can be involved in sexual sin of the heart is to be avoided, is what he's saying here. We won't go any further to that. I'll leave you to deal with the implications in your own mind. Um, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here quite obviously, right? It's a figure of speech, and they would have understood it to be that, right? When 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 we get to heaven, we won't see Peter telling us how he poked out both of his eyes and cut off both of his hands and both of his feet so he could get to heaven, right? They understood that he was speaking with hyperbole here. He's deliberately exaggerating in order to make a very important point, namely that we should take extreme measures if necessary to avoid sexual impurity in our hearts. And Jesus liked to employ this kind of strong imagery. He used it on at least one other occasion, as a matter of fact, recorded later in Matthew 18. And here he adds the feet. Matthew 18, 8 through 9, he said, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, Uh, you're thinking of maybe uh, the Proverbs, where um, his son's eye might be looking at the harlot, and then his hand reaches out and his feet walk toward her or something. Maybe that's the idea, but he said, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. I think several commentators are quite helpful in explaining the meaning of Jesus' use of hyperbole here, and I'm going to quote each one of them, three of them, to show you that I'm not alone in thinking this way about Jesus' teaching here. It's a fairly common way of understanding what he's saying. It's an obvious way of understanding what he's saying. Um, I don't expect to see half the men in here with missing their right eye next week, right? I would commend you for your attempt to be faithful, but I would also... Teach you, you need to learn what a figure of speech is. Um, First, Thomas Constable says this, the right eye is the best eye. The common metaphorical use then is of a right anything is sort of the best thing. A literal interpretation of this verse would have Jesus crippling every member of the human race. Should not one pluck out his left eye as well? Furthermore, disposing of the eye would not remove the real cause of the offense, a lustful heart. Clearly, this is a hyperbolic statement designed to make a point by overstatement. Jesus' point was that his disciples must deal radically with sin. We must avoid temptation at all costs. Here's what William Hendrickson says about it. He's very helpful. When he says, this command must not be taken literally. For even if a person should literally pluck out his right eye, he would still be able to sin with his left eye. Jesus has himself supplied us with a key to its interpretation, namely in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, which I've already read to you, where he used this imagery again. Where in slightly different form, this command is repeated. From that passage, it follows clearly that the eye and the hand that lead a person into sin symbolize and represent occasions of stumbling, because that's the context in which Jesus says those words in Matthew 18, occasions of stumbling. Or if one prefers, enticements to do wrong, beguiling allurements. The general meaning of the passage then is this. Take drastic action in getting rid of whatever in the natural course of events will tempt you into sin. Third and and the final example I'll give you is from John Stott, who also agrees when he writes this. The command to get rid of troublesome eyes, hands, and feet is an example of our Lord's use of dramatic figures of speech. What he was advocating was not a literal physical self-maiming, but a ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification is the path of holiness he taught. Mortification means putting to death sin. And mortification or taking up the cross to follow Christ means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. Death. Now there, Stott was referring to the way that the Apostle Paul treated the matter in several of his epistles when he talked about the same kinds of things. Here's some examples of that. First from Romans 8, 12 through 14, and these are much better examples because they're scripture. <laughs> Paul says this, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I mean, what, is the, what is the flesh, the sinful nature that we have ever done for us, that we should be a debtor to it, Right? He's been leading us to hell. He says, for if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is conceptually the kind of thing Jesus has in mind, right? When he says, pluck out the eye or cut off the hand. Then he says, for as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How can you tell the true believers? They're the ones putting to death the deeds of the body. They may not do it perfectly, but they try to do it consistently, right? Galatians 5, 24 and 25, Paul says this, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. They put it to death. They've mortified it, to use that older word. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And finally, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, therefore put to death your members which are on earth. And then he says what he means fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Getting back to our Lord Jesus' teaching, having tried to explore it conceptually in in the New Testament, notice also that our Lord Jesus does not assume that the eye and the hand will necessarily cause everyone to sin in the same way. He specifically says, if your right eye causes you to sin, and if your right hand causes you to sin, it may be then that some struggle more with some sins than others. For example, many men may struggle more frequently with the eye that leads to sexual sin in the heart than many women do. Although women can struggle with this too. And some men may struggle more than more other men, you know, more than other men do with, with this sin. So you cannot assume that what is a potential stumbling block for you will necessarily be so for someone else. So there are some men in this room that probably ought not to have a television in their house, right? But that doesn't mean all the men shouldn't. It doesn't mean just because one person has such a problem with a besetting sin here doesn't mean everybody does. So we don't want to get into a legalism here that says the weakest conscience in the room should dictate what everybody else ought to do. Right? We should, we don't want to do that. And Jesus says, "If this is your problem, then you have to deal with it." I grew up looking at pornography. My mother let me look at it. She was one of these hippie '60s kind of people that. Thought it was healthy to see naked bodies and stuff. So I was looking at Penthouse and Playboy when I was five and six. I wish I could undo all of that. Now, I don't think about that stuff anymore, right? It's far from my mind now. I just brought it up, I guess. But, uh, but I'm not struggling with that like I was. But you know what I do now? I have something on my computer, a filtering thing, that you need a password for. And I don't have the password. My wife has it. That's the drastic action I took. There's some websites I can't go to. There's some Christian websites that talk about certain sins. It won't let me into because there's words are there, right? Right. And if I want to see that Christian site, my wife's got to put in the password for me to see it. And if she's not around, I guess I just don't get to read that article by John Viper or whatever. So be it. Now, there are some men that would say, boy, you're weak, aren't you? Well, maybe I feel kind of strong doing that. (laughs) I feel like I'm winning a battle against sin doing that. So that would be my suggestion for some of you if you've had a background like me. um, And you don't trust yourself. If I had the password, I'd like to think I wouldn't use it, but I don't trust myself. I trust my wife. I don't trust me. I trust the Lord. I don't trust me on this, right? So I just don't let myself have the opportunity. I'm plucking out the eye and cutting off a hand in that instance, as best as I can, metaphorically speaking. So that's just an example from, from my own life. But there are some men that might need that. Well, to me, you're kind of like a unicorn, but, but if that's you, more power to you. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you don't struggle with that. Um, praise God for that, is what I say. At any rate, I think we can sum up Jesus' point by saying that any way in which our eye or our hand may be involved in leading us to or taking part in sexual sin in the heart, aiding us in some way in the sexual sin in the heart, has got to be avoided, even if this means taking what may seem to be drastic measures. That's right. In conclusion, then, I I think it, it would be helpful to cite, once again, A passage from John Stott in his commentary on the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's one of the best commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount I think I've ever read. I think when I first started reading it, I couldn't put it down and stayed up all night reading it. Now, maybe that wouldn't happen to you, but uh, that doesn't happen to me with commentaries very often. But I've got some problems with some of this theology. Thankfully, it doesn't crop up in this commentary. He writes this and I think I think it's a helpful helpful thing so I'm going to share it with you. To obey this command of Jesus will involve for many of us a certain maiming. We shall have to eliminate from our lives certain things which though some may be innocent in themselves either are or could easily become sources of temptation. In his own metaphorical language we may find ourselves without eyes, hands or feet. That is, we shall deliberately decline to read certain literature, see certain films, visit certain exhibitions. If we do this, we shall be regarded by some of our contemporaries as narrow-minded, untaught Philistines. What, they will say to us incredulously, you've not read such and such a book, you've not seen such and such a film, why, you're not educated, man. They may be right. We may have had to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether, for the sake of this gain, we are willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule. In our day and age, people like to call you puritanical. And if they really understood the Puritans, they wouldn't use that as a jibe at you. By the way, if somebody calls me puritanical, I know they mean it as an insult. It's a compliment, frankly. Uh, I wish I was holy as most of the Puritans were. Uh, that's what they, they say, right? They ridicule you. Well, I pray that God will grant each of us, by his grace and through the power of his spirit, the faithfulness and discipline to avoid the temptations that surround us these days and to remain pure in our hearts. I pray that we will leave here today with a, a reminder That God cares about the heart. One of the texts that seems to always come to my mind is in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Samuel has been told to go to the household of Jesse to find the new king because Saul was a bad (laughs) king. He wasn't, right? He was a half hearted guy that wasn't fully committed to God, and he just had a bad heart. Right, And he was making the mistake that the people made when they looked at Saul. He's this big strapping guy. He looks like he'd make a good king, right? And Samuel was kind of looking at David's brothers like that, saying, surely this one should be, surely that one. Because he was looking at the outward appearance. And he should have known better, right? But God says this to them. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, one of, one of David's brothers. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. Oh, the Pharisees and scribes were good at that. But the Lord looks at the heart. Let's take a few moments to pray and prepare our hearts. Our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. Holy Father, we've been reminded this morning in the context of dealing with a particular sin of the heart that it is the heart that matters. As Calvin once wrote, our hearts are idle factories. They just turn them out. We covet things we shouldn't covet. We prioritize things we shouldn't prioritize. We lust after things or people we shouldn't lust for. We're constantly tempted, Lord. But we're glad that we have a Savior who is tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, to whom we can run. We can run to Jesus Christ, who is seated at your right hand, where he ever lives to intercede for us. We can come boldly before your throne of grace and talk to the only person who knows how to overcome every temptation every time, the only person who's ever done it and get his help in our time of need. We want, Lord, those of us who know you, I know I can say for all of us, we want to have hearts that are righteous. We want, when you look at our heart, to see a deep desire for righteousness within us. But we know that can only happen because of your spirit. We're glad, those of us who know you, that you have taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You've renewed our hearts. And we ask today that you'd forgive us for all those ways in which our hearts have strayed from you. Our sins of the heart are many and they're great and they're completely unworthy of you. We ask for your forgiveness for these things. And we ask that you would renew in us a zeal to love you with our whole heart. To want to be holy as you are holy. To have a righteousness that puts to shame a righteousness like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And honors our Savior Jesus Christ.